Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Sex Sales Podcast, the podcast where we talk about culture, relationships, and dating from a male and female perspective. Today, we are talking about the the urge to be sexual and to be comfortable with all these wild sexual activities, to be comfortable with sex positivity, even if that's maybe not something that you want to do. It might be something that you agree with, but it might not be something that you specifically want to do. Uh, Maybe some wild kinks or even just casual encounters. There does seem to be a underlying implicit culture that encourages everyone to engage in that uh, rather than just normalize it. And some people may feel that they want to they want it to be ubiquitous and, and normal in society, but not necessarily something that they want to do. And we'll dive right into that. Uh, but before we do that, Eliza, how are you doing? You good? I'm good. I'm very grateful for you being Patient. I said to Adrian on the way home, I was like, you have to get home on time because every single time I podcast with Neil, I either have a tech issue or an issue with Remy. And today I had both. So good. here we are, almost at my bedtime. Well, this <laughs> I'm is sorry, a- but grateful to you. <laughs> this is early for a comedian, so I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, it probably is. I got is no it. responsibilities. You got all the responsibilities. <laughs> you got the baby. And the- What's your bedtime these days? It's it's so variable. Uh, on a good week, it'll be 10 to 11, sometime between then. But if I'm performing a lot, it could be sort of 12 to 1. So oh, That is crazy. Yeah, it should, it should be consistent, uh, but it's not. I mean, I got back from a gig in Newcastle last night at 12.30, and then I wanted to wow. eat. I was starving, so I ate <laughs> and I watched some YouTube, and I got to bed at about 1.30. Um, oh but God. I don't have a nine o'clock start anyway, so I slept. I yeah, didn't sleep in too much, but um, yeah. look, comes with the territory. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, you'd be used it to it by it now. What's your bedtime? Let me get like, Literally, like nine o'clock or something. At latest, <laughs> really. Latest wow. night. I mean, my sleep is so. I think the last time we were podcasting, I was like, "Yeah, Remy sleeps through the night now." It happened twice and never again. So still not I can't happening. even. No, I can't even get him in his own cot now. So he ends up in bed with me every single night. It's gone um, worse. Yeah, he's worse. So remember this, everyone. If you want to have children, mm. I'm. I'm like, oh, he'll just do that for a few months. Newborn sleeps terrible. A year in, have still you- has. Never slept. Have you done um, sleep training? <laughs> everything. I have tried literally wow. everything. But I have learned that up to 20% of babies can't be sleep trained. Um, and okay. I've paid thousands of dollars for sleep consultants. And it's at the point where they're like, you either try like an intensive cried out thing or it just won't work because I tried every other technique. So I'm not going to. I'm not going to do it. Like I did try a little bit of crying out, but it's so distressing and so upsetting. I just can't do it. Like I'd I'd rather just hold him for three years (laughs) to sleep than deal with that again. It was too sad. And I just feel like uh, it's, it's really like, I don't want to say it's selfish because some parents like I'm not working. I have that luxury and other parents are back at work, et cetera. But um, yeah, like I'm a researcher. So when I look at sleep training and it, it shows, the studies show that the babies still wake up the exact same amount of times as a non-sleep trained baby. On average, they only sleep 16 minutes longer. They just learn not to signal to their mom or dad when they're distressed or scared of the dark or wanting comfort. So, yeah, you know, there's there's a trade-off either way. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. That's probably what (laughs) ethnic parents do. They just knock them out or something (laughs) like that. Yeah. Give them melatonin. I think a lot of parents do. Most These days I feel like most parents sleep train, but. No one can sleep. My girlfriend struggles with sleep. Um, Does she? A couple of my friends haven't been sleeping well. Maybe it's cost of living. Maybe it's the phones. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Lack of I sun, remember, sedentary lifestyle. Like, remember when we had, when we got phones, um, but when that was a thing, I was like, I can't, I won't even sleep with my phone in the room because I was scared about getting brain cancer or, or something when I was like 14. And now I like sleep with my phone under my pillow. It's terrible. Under your pillow. Why? Yeah. Oh, because 
She's got to get those Instagram notifications. <laughs> no, it's just usually during the night when Remy wakes up and I'm trying to find where he's fallen off the bed twice. I have bumpers now, um, but sometimes I wake up and just don't know where he is because <laughs> it's pitch black. So I'm just making he's sure his head is up. And is he all right? This, that would fine, be a big fall fine. for a baby. I know. I'm so lucky that. And that the times, fall itself didn't wake you up. It did. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, one time he cried for like a second because he got a fright. Um, but both times he just landed on his tummy and was fine. The other time I, I didn't notice because he was just started crawling around pulling shit out of my drawers. <laughs> That's a big fall for a baby. Yeah. And this is, yeah, all other babies I know that have done the same fall have ended up with fractured um, skulls, literally, um, being in hospital. Whoa. So we were really lucky. And our whole bed is bumpered, but. He can just crawl over the bumpers. This is the thing. It's like, what do you do? Because if I put him in his cot, he wakes up every 40 minutes so I don't get sleep. But if he falls in my bed, that's that risk that he just gets up. So now he sleeps and uh, next to me if he comes into bed, which is most nights now, and I literally just hold him <laughs> like in my arm. I don't move, which is good. Oh, my God. Um, you got to put pillows around yeah. the bed as well. Well, no, because I don't want to like any suffocation risk. So... I can't, oh, man. can't have anything on the bed when he's in the bed except for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad he's okay. Just, just the image of a baby falling off a bed is kind of funny. I mean, yeah, assuming was, there's no fine. big injury, but that's <laughs> yeah. just just it, it, falling on its stomach. That's something yeah. about that is kind of funny. Yeah. Well, they say it's only like it's not only, but it's it's a, you should always go to hospital if they fall a length twice their height. Otherwise, just observe and see. So he's he's like a cat. He's he's falling. Yeah. He's big heights, and he's fine. Oh, he stacks it all the time, so he's um he's used to it. <laughs> okay, wow. Anyways, yeah, wow. Good I mean, it's feel bad. I come on here and I'm like, I'm not going to talk about Remy's sleep, and then <laughs> I always do. It's more exciting than anything I'm going through <laughs> right now. So. I'm so fixated on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, wow. Anyway, it's <laughs> wild. Well. Speaking Cherish about your sleep-ins. yeah, uh, speaking of an issue that has that's diametrically opposed to babies, uh, so Eliza sent me a t- no, sorry, uh, this was this was related to what I mentioned in one of the previous podcasts where I mentioned oh, mind blanking on her name now, Louise Perry, Louise Perry, yeah, Louise Perry, and you googled her during the podcast, and a and a passage came up about her thoughts on sex positivity and how there is an implicit pressure on women to be comfortable with some of these, uh, you know, radical or extreme ideas about sex, um, BDSM and and kink and group sex and casual sex. And though there isn't maybe a direct requirement for people to be comfortable with that, there there is a – it's implied that – if if you're not comfortable with that, there may be something wrong with your programming. You may just be sort of still enmeshed with the patriarchy or something like that. And mm. from the male side, a lot of guys actually don't like what is often described as hookup culture. They don't want to be a you know non-committal fuckboy and try to be exciting for this is maybe more for late teens and early twenties. They they don't want to just be. Uh, fun in the moment and and not try to make a long-term commitment but there is this perceived pressure that they have to be like that or that they have to engage in casual sex and maybe the conversations among their friend group relate to that and what you see in the media um again it doesn't directly uh pressure you to engage in that sort of lifestyle but it's it's it feels as though that's normal and if you don't want to do that, you're abnormal or you're a prude or you're too traditional. And this actually seems to be more of a growing concern among a lot of people. And I'm hearing things about this from people of various political backgrounds, various cultural backgrounds. And uh, from my experience, it, it, it rings true to me. Uh, when I was younger, I didn't really want to you know, be the suave guy at the bar trying to pick up every girl i just sometimes wanted to very gradually talk to someone be friends with them first but it felt like that avenue wasn't as available uh compared to just 
going to a party and trying to be exciting and you know get their number immediately or or try to hook up with them that night so uh i guess where do we start from this where what what was your inspiration to talk about something like this well i bought the book and um I read a third of it this afternoon, so <laughs> I haven't read the whole thing. And I will say I am loving it, especially as someone that I've always claimed um, and advocated for sex positivity. And this book is quite um, – it's definitely changed my views on things and put a lot of things in, into perspective, but there are some definite controversial statements and just that really she quickly, draws what, on. What's the, yeah. Which book of, of hers is this again? The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Uh-huh like this if you're on youtube you put the paperback. Um, nice yeah came the next day on amazon it was great um so yeah she like neil said she talks about how we've made all these movements towards a sexual revolution and liberating women and we've kind of um using sex positivity as a way to seem as though we've progressed feminism for example. However, she argues that in many aspects, it also hinders um, feminism. So she doesn't say it It as a whole, sexual revolution is a hindrance to uh, women, but she says there is a trade-off. Like in some ways, it's been great in the sense of like um, the pill and women's rights to accessing specific healthcare, um, IVF, uh, being able to, she referenced like FedEx off your breast milk if you're back to work and you've got a baby, like all these things that has been amazing and liberating also like the progress um, Sorry, with LGBTI. That? FedEx your breast milk. <laughs> yeah, like she's saying like this, it's normalized to for women to be back at work and then if you have to sit, you can literally mail off your breast milk. <laughs> back to home or whatever or have a live-in nanny or an au pair and that's normal or even get a surrogate and that's accepted. That's um, you just so hope that they those... deliver that to the right address. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what they say about bodybuilders and breast milk. That's yeah, true. Um, it's <laughs> um, but, yeah, so she's saying like those are the positives. However, there is the trade-off, which is that the sexual revolution can be framed as a feminist uh, movement as well. However, it actually is just, in essence, almost catering to the sexual fantasies and desires of men, like saying faking orgasms or saying you love anal when you don't or being open to kink and fetish when you're not, um, embracing the BDSM uh, lifestyle or community if it's not your thing, cup of tea, Um, embracing non-monogamous lifestyles, casual sex, and she emphasizes casual sex. So there is a term that she references um, a lot throughout this book called sociosexual. And basically if you rate low on this level, and she references a lot of studies and research, which I love about it. And if you rate low, it means that you're more inclined and find it more appealing to have monogamous relationships, um, waiting for sex or delaying sex, like less inclined for hookup culture, etc. And most women actually fall into that category. And most men, not all men, but most men fall high onto the social sexual um, scale, which is finding it appealing to have some essence of variety in hookup culture or um, kink or BDSM or open relationships and there is that discrepancy. So she's saying in essence when we're moving ourselves forward in this sexual revolution, we're just meeting ourselves to meet the fantasy of the standard male, not all men but um, the standard archetype of a man and being cool with anything. And she said in essence we're also ignoring intentionally ignoring harmful like topics about the harmful impact of pornography um, or having access to women and looking at them on your social media, et cetera, and instead we're kind of pushed to be like, well, we're the cool girl. Oh, yeah, my husband can check out other girls or we talk about how hot this girl is and is that actually healthy and functional in a relationship? For some people it is perhaps and others it's not and Final point I'll make as well is that she touches on a lot is that in her research, most women actually state that 
not in her research, sorry, in the research she's drawn on, most women state that they actually don't enjoy hookup culture. And there is some women that do, of course, but majority actually don't. However, this is the most normalized um, sexual change that's happened in our society recently. And so she talks about this term called sexual disenchantment, which is we take the meaning away from sex and we make it as simple as almost exchanging coffees um, or doing a simple task to someone like, oh, well, you want a promotion at work? Well, here, complete a sexual favor for me. Or you are going on a date, I'm paying for dinner, you should put out for me. Um, And how, like, is this really a feminist thing or is this actually bettering even just for men and women to take away the importance of a sexual relationship. So this is the thing that I found like most profound for me because I have always been like, if you want casual sex, have casual sex as much as you want. And I still do feel that way, but it definitely put a new spin, new perspective on things for me. Um, And how, yeah, we just kind of minimize it. But actually when you talk about the lived experiences of women, especially when the Me Too movement came out where they talked about some aspects, of course, Me Too was about, um, you know, sexual assault, rape, harassment, but a lot of women also wrote in talking about how they had empty sexual experiences because they felt that they should be embracing this hookup culture and then getting ghosted the next day and feeling empty and wishing they'd said no or not feeling strong enough to say no um, or reject someone because he'd paid for something. So yeah, it is um, a really fascinating spin on this. And I think that a lot of people when they interpret or read what she says will be taken aback as a lot of this is also about, she talks about how rape is like natural for men, not saying that she condones it. In fact, she says it should be life imprisonment, but biologically she talks about these kind of things um and when you read it you're like oh my god i can't believe someone's actually put this in a book in front of me <laughs> but she's talking about the the biological evolutionary biology and the function of it and how our interpretation of it and how we're always advocating this is calling me out majorly we're always advocating for just educate boys not to rape and she's like that does nothing it literally does nothing in helping boys not rape. Um, so that's a whole other spin she's taken on it as well, like that we're always pushing for. Just educate, sexual education and this and that and workshops or rehabilitation for um, uh, men that have committed these crimes. And they actually found in one like a rehabilitation centre where they program, they do a program for men that have raped women or raped or just raped um, people And they actually found that after the completion of the program, they were slightly more likely to (laughs) re-offend. Just wild, isn't it? Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I haven't read the book. I've listened to a lot of podcasts with it. I've been meaning to read the book. It's been on my to-read list for a very long time. But all the podcasts I listened to with her, I found extremely interesting. I Mm. was engaged that a a woman and not and not a woman who had necessarily come from a uh, I don't know her specific background but it doesn't sound like she's come from an ultra orthodox or christian no. background but she's come to these conclusions maybe not entirely herself but they've come as a reaction to some of the more modern progressive ideas around gender and sex and feminism and she definitely caused a stir when she first came onto the scene. But as you say, she's highly educated. She's mm. eloquent. She uh, backs up all her ideas with studies. And mm. she's very interesting. I think she should be um, – she is relatively prominent, but I would like to see her even more in the uh, mainstream discourse around these topics because I think it's – it comes with a different – uh, people are less guarded when a, when it's a, w- a woman talking about these ideas because sometimes if a man talks about similar ideas, people, understandably so, can be very guarded about those sorts of things. Mm. But then 
what do you think about if I'm to play devil's advocate a little bit here? Okay. And I'm not trying to be the, the spokesperson for feminism or anything like that here, but I, I'm assuming a feminist might say something like, hey, look, we never actually said you have to engage in kink and all these wild sexual activities. All we tried to champion was that it's it's not immoral. There's nothing wrong with engaging in those kind of activities. Where do you think the pressure came from to actually engage in those kind of activities and those norms? She actually does talk about that, which I love about um, her book, is that she says a liberal feminist would respond to this by saying ABC and then she'll talk about why that response may have a little, maybe perhaps a lack of education or a lack of understanding or an intentional. So she will talk about like feminism, uh, liberal feminists will intentionally um, or unintentionally not talk about the harmful impacts of pornography, et cetera. And I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with whether they do or don't, but she does in a way talk about it in a much better way than I can phrase it, um, that yes, feminism and liberal feminists do talk about, well, sometimes we just want to have the opportunity to have sex and not fear the reputation um, damage to our reputation, all those other repercussions, and we just want um, to be able to access the same pleasure that men can without judgment and fear, etc. And so she talks about that and she says for some women that is absolutely, of course, that's what you want and that's amazing and you should be able to access that and you should be able to enjoy that. But for the majority of women based on the research – is that that isn't the um, that isn't the actual want of majority of women based on that um, socio-sexual scale that she talks about, and she said it's backed by and she lists millions of studies basically, and so she said when we have this whole societal shift that says this is now the norm, of course it's going to benefit some women, but is that going to benefit all women to say we really want to? have you all embrace this? And of course, um, feminism will say, well, we, no, we don't make everyone embrace this. You don't have to embrace kink. You don't have to embrace open relationships, etc." She does say that, however, you can't really deny that it's the societal shift and the push for women. And one example that she, um, she puts forward is that um, for example, a girl or a woman that is abstinent and wants to wait till marriage to have sex and she's at college age or university age and how finding a partner for her or a relationship for her would be so difficult because she has to compete with all women and most women that are down to have casual sex even if that is truly not what they would want to have anyway, um, they'd just be willing to. So being not a sexually positive person or not, not I don't want to say sexually positive, but sexually forward person inhibits that woman um, and she's perceived as unusual and it also greatly declines her options and dating pool. So I don't know, it's kind of an interesting perspective. I do think like it's, it's not a be-all, end-all, and I do think in overall my opinion that the sexual revolution is and sex positivity is much more positive than it is negative. Um, but, yeah, she I feel like she's more neutral on it all, almost just raising the point saying against it, like, well, be aware of what the trade-off is as well and is this actually being helpful to women as a whole. Um, and she does talk a little bit about how it impacts men negatively as well, but I haven't got to that part. <laughs> so so I don't know. <laughs> if I remember correctly from what she said in podcasts and things, the, the, the sexual revolution and the new norms associated with sex benefits a small minority of both women and men. And as you said, mm. it's the women who tend to be more sociosexual and the men who have, even if a lot of men are more sociosexual, not all men maybe have access to multiple partners and are attractive to multiple women, but the men who are are then able to be in open relationships, have a different sexual partner, 
once a week or something like that, and they're loving it. <laughs> they're loving life. Mm. Uh, but then what happens is a, a lot of men may not then be able to do that and be able to uh, even have any intimacy at all, and then you you get incels. You get um, mm. a lot of men who are quite frustrated and um it's interesting isn't it because it it it's coming from a foundation that says look there are biological sex differences between males and females on average uh and we need to take those into account when we think about cultural norms and and you know ideal behaviors and what we should instill into people mm. and it's just such a it's such a minefield to talk about because, you know, if if, if it's hearsay to, to go against uh, not just sexual liberation but, uh, you know, personal freedom yeah, in any that's regard. That's a good point. It's, yeah. it, would you say it's similar to, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's the same in any way, but something like I've always thought when I was, when I was younger, uh, yeah, you know, there's nothing, there shouldn't be anything wrong with doing drugs. If, if, if it's an individual's choice to do the drugs or smoke or... or drink alcohol, that's their health that they're putting in at risk and they're not necessarily harming anyone directly. I mean, if they become an addict and things, they can harm the people around them. But uh, generally speaking, that's it's, it's, a, it's a choice for them to do. However, when you normalize drug taking and maybe it's you hear a lot about it in, in, in songs, in, 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 in movies and TV shows, it becomes fashionable and cool to 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 take drugs, and then if you're the person at, at high school who doesn't want to do drugs, you're ostracized, and you might be peer pressured into doing it. And then it actually normalizes drug taking rather than just normalizes that some people might want to take drugs, if that makes sense. And mm. do you think there's something vaguely similar to that, where once you once you say something is normal, if it's the if it's the fun thing yeah. to do, it then becomes the popular thing to do. And especially in, I think, creative people tend to be more sociosexual. I would guess I haven't seen studies on this, but they would. Pro, I would guess they're more sociosexual and liberal in their use of drugs and substances. And this is from personal experience in the in the arts world. Everyone knows it. It's the stereotype. They all like to fuck and do drugs and, and whatnot. And they're the ones writing films. They're the ones writing music. Yeah. They're the ones at the vanguard of culture and they're defining what's fashionable and what's cool. And so uh, that subset of the population is normalizing something that may not be what the average person wants to do. It might not be what yeah. the, you know, the nurse or the engineer or the doctor wants to do. They, maybe they don't want to have... 10 casual partners every every month and and smoke weed every day but because you hear that in music you hear that uh on social media and you see that in movies and it's cool it's always the cool characters that are doing that that's where some of that pressure comes from do you think it comes from art yeah i think it's that's a huge um part of this is that it's like well this is the trend this is what's normal this is what's encouraged and this is what is perceived and painted to be as the most fun and fulfilling and yeah let's hook up with this person let's hook up with that person let's do this and this and this which is all great and good but if it's that lack of cognitive understanding that how am I actually feeling after these encounters or how does this actually impact me? And is it something that is positive for me or negative? And another thing that um, Louise talks about in her book, which I thought was really interesting as well, is that there are so many, we feel that we've come so far and in many ways we have, but there are also so many parallels. Like she references um, a magazine from the fifties that or sixties or whatever that talks about how to write, um, how to keep your house spotless and clean and how to make it look like you haven't exerted any effort for when your husband comes home and you're put together with a nice dress and your makeup on and you've cleaned the house all day but you don't you can't look like you've done any work and people were like no 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 and now she talks about well in the cosmopolitan magazines of recent years have been how to please your man 20 ways to look harder for your man how to give the best blowjob of your life it's still the same essence of this is what you should be doing to please a man and now it's just putting yourself out 
sexually. So she even said like before it was wearing gloves on your hand and now it's making sure you have no pubic hair. <laughs> um, and the, the changes that we make thinking like, oh, we're doing great, but it's for, it's still serving someone else. Um, and in a way it's like, she's saying like, she's almost being feminist by, but also talking against feminism in it, which is, I think is really interesting. But yeah, I do think there's major societal influences, the trend of media, um, creativity, and yeah, it can be just a, I know all the time and I see all the time girls saying that they introduced, um, like I know a couple that introduced pornography into their relationship where they watch it together because the husband requested that. She said yes. And then all of a sudden he can't um, maintain an erection unless they're watching porn together and how that impacts her. And then I go onto Reddit all the time and I see, um, people talking about the same things all the time. My husband's asking for an open relationship. I feel like I should say yes. Or even the other way, my girlfriend, or my uh, wife is asking for an open relationship. It's 2023. Is this the norm? Should I just go with it and try it? I know so many couples that are doing it, swinging. I'm not sure if I want to try this. Like 10 times a day, I see posts saying, are threesome work? Oh, are threesomes worth it? do they actually work? And 90% of the comments are like, <laughs> nah, man, <laughs> don't, don't do it. It's only good in your head. <laughs> um, so yeah. And I've also been seeing um, countless, countless posts as well about, cause I'm in a lot of like postpartum Reddits and that, that means after you've had a baby. Um, and so often I see women writing in saying I'm three months postpartum and my husband is complaining about um, my body not looking good enough since I've had a baby and needing to get back in the gym. And like three months, you're barely recovered. It takes a full year. Actually, they're saying two years now to recover from having a baby. Like, what the fuck? And then another post I saw yesterday was a woman writing in saying, um, my husband is, I've got three kids like six, nine and 14 or something. And my husband is complaining. I don't wear sexy enough clothes. And she's like, I put my makeup on every day. I have my cleavage on. I wear short dresses, but he wants it even sexier. I don't feel comfortable doing this around the children, but maybe I just should. And I'm not saying this is an issue against men. Um, this is just the easy, easiest examples to draw and it's definitely happening both ways. But it's that essence of like, well, I need to meet someone's sexual needs now and make sure that it is top tier best fantasies being met or else I'm going to get out competed by other people that are more willing to do those things. Um, and are the big question is, are those people that are willing to do them, are they all actually wanting to do it? Or are they just participating in something that they feel they should be? Like when we talked, we've done like a million podcasts, like talking about the cool girl trend where you say like, yeah, I'm down for that. Yeah, that's fine. Like you can cheat on me and I'll, I'll let it go. That's fine. Like, but no, it's, it's most cases it's not. Um, so it, it, it can definitely be, I think, dangerous and harmful to relationships and also what happens we, we've been in the hookup culture for some time now. I think probably for your and my, the majority of our adult life, it's been like, that's been a big turning point towards hookup culture. Um, and before, I don't think, I think this all started in the 60s. Yeah, but definitely since the, since um like Tinder and stuff was created, it's been like sure, that exponentially yeah. um, increased. increased. And like there's, there's studies as well that say that when, um, I think I mentioned this before, but there's been multiple studies since the 70s that have found this exact same result, exact same result that when a woman approaches men on the street and asks them, will you want to come home with me and have sex with me now? Majority of them said yes. And when men approached women on the street and asked them to say the same question, not one woman <laughs> said yeah. yes. So hookup culture now is much, much easier because a woman can reflect. She can look at his profile. She can think about it. She doesn't have to answer on the spot. She can, you know, build attraction and banter, etc. So yeah, it's massive at the moment. 
Yeah, a lot Crazy. of people have multiple fuck buddies and people on rotation yeah. and a roster. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a bench and um, yeah, she's not wrong. That does sound like a fantasy for a lot of men, mm-hmm. but the thing is, it's not accessible for a lot of men either. So yeah, uh, it becomes uh, this just sexual playground for some of the most attractive men. Yeah. And then that's what like incels and red pill guys talk about, but then they add all this resentful and uh, angry and bitter language around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of these statistics, is, they do show that uh, not uh, as many men are participating in hookup culture, even if it may be their fantasy to do so. Mm. And it sounds like a lot of women are participating in it without it necessarily being what they want to do. It might be something when we're younger, we want to do all of that. And then as we grow older, it's yeah. it becomes less appealing. But then again, it's this is an aspect of uh, gender that could be very socially constructed because... You'd have to compare this with other cultures. I, I remember reading. Um, well, it's the it's the Bible for polyamory, isn't it? It's um, what's it called? Sex at Dawn, and he um, studies a lot of tribal cultures where they're not monogamous at all. In fact, it's the norm to not be monogamous, and many of the women will have multiple male sexual partners. Um, and before they understood the link between you know, the, the sperm and, and pregnancy, when multiple men were sleeping with one woman in the tribe, they assumed that the whole tribe was the father and that they'd raise the whole mm-hmm. child themselves. And in fact, this is what uh, Camille Paglia talks about, similar things like this in one of her books, um, Sexual Personae. And many earlier cultures worshipped women and worshipped the female form. And even the, <laughs> this is going to sound potentially crass, but the vagina was seen as this portal to, you know, the religious world because they couldn't understand, they didn't have the scientific understanding to know how it all operated. All they knew was that a a human life came out of it. Mm. And so they worshipped it and and thought it was fantastic. Uh, So it could be that all humans are naturally extremely sexual and want to sleep with multiple people, uh, but at least today, the the studies, even with a lot of the different cultures, uh, d- sorry, different cultural climate that many people, especially Gen Gen Y and younger, have grown up in, is still a bifurcation of the genders in terms of what they are looking for. And I think I saw another study where they asked both men and women, "What are the ideal amount of sexual partners you would like in your life before you settle down with someone?" And then I think with men, it was. 20 or something like that mm. and with women it was i think three or four yeah so that's a, that's an aggregate of i don't know yeah. how many people were in the sample space there but you know it's uh it is something that seems to be different between men and women and and look if you're looking at it from an evolutionary biology lens there's a much greater risk for women in any sexual encounter they're generally more physically vulnerable uh and they risk being pregnant because this was our biology was designed naturally way before the advent of the pill or condoms. Mm-hmm. And if you have a, a sexual encounter with someone that you then realize didn't have ideal genes, that's nine months where you have to carry that baby and then yeah. you're attached to it after that. Whereas with a man, he can sleep with someone that he then realizes may not have ideal genes for his progeny and, and it's no big deal. The next day he can sleep with someone else. Mm, mm-hmm. so exactly. That, yeah, there's a there's a clear uh, sex difference when it comes to the just the implications and consequences of any sexual encounter as well. Do you know what's interesting? Because I was thinking about this a lot before and she talks about this a lot Um evolutionary biology and you're right that women naturally tend to be more picky because we have to sacrifice so much of not just our body for pregnancy but then also for child caring and then it then that childbearing changes your whole entire 
hormone chemistry, your body, everything in order to best provide for your infants. And it takes years. Um, so we would pick someone that we feel that one would give us the best possible specimen of a child. And then hopefully also someone that can protect us and or provide for us. Um, however, with men, they can feel more in uh, in the biological essence the need is to spread your seed and not all biologically speaking not all men have that urge to stay around and see what they have produced um but the urge to produce is forever there for most men um and this is actually the controversial she ta- uh, take she has on rape and she, for context, she worked many years in a uh, crisis rape center working with victims. And she holds a lot of love and compassion, obviously, um, for victims. And she says that saying rape, the narrative we have about rape being an issue of control, um, and that's what we often say to victims, or it's he's seeking control over you, or he, it's his way of getting control, is inaccurate and potentially harmful to say, whereas rape in most majority of cases is actually literally as simple as seeking sexual pleasure. Um, and that is why most rape victims are 15 year old girls and most rapists are actually young men, um, between the ages of like 17 and 24, we're at the peak of sexuality and sexual awakening. And in no way is that information meant to justify anything but it is meant to help people understand there is biological mechanisms um and in every there's some people claim that um rape is not seen amongst animals or other groups or other species where it it is seen in every species and so (laughs) i feel so like tense talking about this because i don't want to come across in a way that it is justifying or explaining the behavior of rapists um but my point is is that even though there is biology to explain these things and the drives that we have it still doesn't mean that it's justified or right or can explain well this is why we have to work within doing abc instead of um, sex education, etc., um, and things like that. So it is a, a tense, sensitive top, topic to talk about. But yeah, my point was as well, and I was saying, I was thinking about this before, was that we talk about women being more picky and men wanting to have more variety and whether that's a natural biological inclination. However, isn't it interesting that women are much more likely to end a relationship to seek someone else or initiate divorce, et cetera, as well? And probably not for the reasons of variety, but it's funny that when a man settles down statistically, he's more likely to want to stay in that relationship and, (laughs) and see it out till the end. Yeah. The, uh, very politically incorrect argument there is that the men who are more incentivized to stick with the one woman generally there may there may be an attraction imbalance there where Mm. he knows he might not be as attractive on the uh, if you want to call it the open market and as a result he's um it's far more consequential for him if he loses that partner whereas for the woman, she might find be, be able to find another a suitor, a man, and 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 you know this is obviously a very hyper rational way of talking about very intimate and meaningful relationships for human beings. So yes, as you say, this is extremely um, delicate topics. Uh, coming back to the rape thing, I I also totally want to you know add that um, point to say that it's clearly an extraordinarily sensitive topic. I, from the the male perspective, I think if you do treat it as a natural phenomenon, it will actually have a greater effect at lessening the incidence of it. Mm, And that's ultimately what we want to do. And I can't see how uh, treating it as a learned behavior will actually um, limit the incidence of it because you're then assuming that any kind of not just 
Right, but any kind of um, infringement upon someone's sexual autonomy is something that they've been culturally ingrained to do. And as a result, we, we you're then incentivized to just look at all of culture, control it as much as possible and really look into it. And then what they've also found that's very unfortunate is that the some of these women who then talk to men who are the most progressive and the most um, in favor of these kind of ideas of it, it being socially constructed actually can behave quite badly because they assume, all right, women have sex the same way men do. And if they don't, it's purely just because they still have patriarchal programming or something like that. And that can create a lot of those maybe not you know direct malicious rape but a lot of those me too incidences where there's a terrible miscommunication and the impact is extraordinarily significant and for those women it's um it's atrocious because they think well this is the man who's actually very liberal and and a feminist and very progressive and if he acts this badly imagine how badly the other men must act yeah. um so i uh that's thank you. I feel like you articulated what I was trying to say so much better. <laughs> I was getting flustered talking about it. So I think that's exactly right. Um, and it 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 is such a tricky situation because when you put the narrative of it's an issue of control, it's a man trying to get control, and I'm saying man because it's ninety to ninety eight percent of um, of assaulters are male when it comes to sexual assault, and it when they have that narrative, then the public and society perceives, okay, so how do we prevent it? We talk about um, coercive control. We talk about control and manipulation and abuse, et cetera, et cetera. But is that actually tackling the problem at hand if we're not approaching it from what it actually is? And she references these studies, which are really hard to read as a woman, um, which basically was done in multiple times over multiple years in multiple countries, et cetera. And all the outcomes were set similar similar outcomes, which was basically anything from ranging from 30% to 35%, depending on the study. But let's say 35% of men found in this research study stated that if there were no consequence, no chance of STI, no chance of being caught, that they, if given the opportunity – they would rape a woman um, or if the, not given an opportunity, but if the opportunity were in front of them, they would take it if there was zero consequence to it. And that's 35% of men said that they would take that. So thinking like, you know, obviously I'm not saying 35% of men are rapists. It's a biological desire that some men have. And so she, her approach in what she's on, I've only read, I haven't read her entire theory on what should be done, but she's saying instead of the ex education, which of course still should happen for some people that don't actually know about these things. Like a lot of young people don't know about coercion where you're saying, come on, babe, just five minutes. Just let me put the tip in. Just do this a little bit. That's coercion. A lot of young people don't know that, um, which I think in that case, you know, sexual education is essential. Um, however, as a whole, she said, really what needs to be happening is greater consequence for sexual assault and rape. It needs to be life imprisonment. It shouldn't be like a six-month thing and then be released back into the public for you to reoffend. And then she referenced a study that was 1% of rapists in the UK that go through court, et cetera, actually end up in jail, 1%. Like it's just wild. So – there needs to be greater judicial and legal and however we approach it and greater consequence because if that may be the only thing that actually prevents it is the fear of consequence, even though that feels so morally wrong and, you know, as a woman I want to say, well, that's disgusting, like that shouldn't be the reason you don't want to rape women we got to do what works. <laughs> if that's what's going to be the thing that works is that if you do this, you're in jail for life, even mm. if you do it one time, well, then that should be done. It's interesting that that crime is seen in that unique way because you look at just, say, non-sexual violence and no one, as far as I'm aware, no one really says that's a purely cultural phenomenon. They understand, all right, it's, it's, it's natural for us to, in an extremely heated argument, you, you've – 
maybe not everyone, but I've had the urge to be violent towards other people. And then, you know, you yeah. obviously have the ability to restrict that, but the urge is there and yeah. it's not something that was cul- uh, potentially if on a subconscious level it was culturally ingrained, but, I mean, this has just been there throughout all human history. Violence has been a feature of the human condition and the way to ameliorate that is to either have a cultural code that says it's it's morally wrong and, well, to have that and then and then to also have strict laws about it. Um, but I don't think saying it's a purely cultural phenomenon or it's, pu- or it's purely a product of your environment, I don't think that's accurate. Um, and that's just talking about non-sexual violence. Um, yeah. it, it comes down to a philosophical conundrum of whether the human condition is inherently imperfect so whether we will always have an urge to you know steal and cheat and be violent and commit crime and and yeah rape uh, or is it because of culture and i think that's the big the big split that's where it comes that it, it comes down to that and the modern wave of culture has been um buttressed by the foundation that it is all cultural Yeah, God. <laughs> Heavy stuff, isn't it, when you think about those things sometimes where you, it's, you feel like when you provide that information and you put that information out there, some people could interpret that so dangerously by saying, well, it's natural or this occurs naturally in all species, et cetera, therefore it should be accepted or or whatever. But by having the accurate studies and research put on it, we can better interpret how to mitigate the problem um so anyways Mm. let's leave that one (laughs) behind and move on to let's let's move on to the slightly lesser version i guess coercion or the pressure to put out on first dates um or even just without the coercion the expectation of if you pay you um if someone pays for you, then you should put out and the pressure that women feel because I have heard that time and time again from so many women that they can't help but feel that way. Um, and I was thinking about this recently like because I've said this a million times, like on most of my dates that I went on as a single woman, I'd either like really push to split the bill or even most of the time I would just get up and pay because I awkwardly feel like, um, you never know someone's financial standing. I had an okay financial standing, so I just pay. And I'm I'm a I'm a gift giver. It's one of my big languages of love, so it's no like sweat off my back or whatever. But I was thinking maybe on a subconscious level as well, it, it completely mitigates any expectation from me um, having been given someone something from someone else, um, like a dinner paid for. And as sad as that is to say that I would have felt that pressure, I genuinely think that I would have, um, which is a pretty crazy thing. And I, I wonder if there is a, a version of that experience that men have where they're like, well, if so-and-so does this, then I have to have sex or I have to get in a relationship with her because she keeps calling me every day or I've taken her to meet my family. Therefore it's expected I'd be in a relationship on the other end. So what do you think, like do men get that same pressure for, for sex or do you think the other end of the spectrum is balanced where men might more likely get the pressure for a long-term committed relationship when that's not truly what they want at that time? Yeah, I think it's far more likely to be the second option. I'm sure there's instances where mm. men experience the pressure to engage in sexual activity that they don't really want to. Uh, but I'm, you know, taking a wild guess here and saying that's likely something women experience more. And the mm. pressure to uh, engage in a longer term commitment is something that men sometimes feel tacitly coerced into. If, for example, you've you've maybe wanted something casual but you've slept with someone multiple times or you've you know gone on you've you've been more um emotionally intimate with them or you know even things like i mean this is so dystopian to say it almost but if it's not just cold casual sex where you're also hugging afterwards and you might be spooning and holding hands or something then 
you think, oh, these are signs that I'm interested in a relationship when I might not actually want that. I might just want to do yeah. that with someone for that night. Whereas I, from what I've heard, a lot of women might interpret that as indicators of um, emotional interest at, this, on top of that actually happened to my interest. friend, but in reverse where my friend, I hooked up two of my friends together. The three of us went to a house and then I was like, I'm going to go home. I'm so tired because I knew they wanted to sleep together. So I left. She stayed the night. They had amazing wild sex. And then she said afterwards, he was like, you can crash tonight because I was her ride back. And I said, I'll come get her in the morning. And um, she said they had sex a second time, went to sleep and she, he was on his back and she put her head on, on his chest and he immediately froze and then was like, why are you hugging me? Like he literally asked her straight out and she was like, why not? Like I'm just, I'm just like we've just had sex. <laughs> and that's another point actually that I find really interesting. That I, I've been thinking about this recently is that almost, it's interesting how hugging and kissing nowadays is more intimate than the act of sex itself. Like why do people feel vulnerable kissing if they're not ready to commit in a long-term relationship yeah, but wow. they're so willing to have your penis in, in, in her vagina instead? <laughs> Just it's crazy, isn't yeah. it? Tie me up. Like, oh, don't kiss me. We're not in a relationship. <laughs> can, Just fuck me. <laughs> you can tie me up and, and let's have raw anal sex but don't hold my hand. Yeah, and I see that all the time as like a rule in um in threesomes as well. It's like, yeah, you know, you can um have me with four men, but no one's allowed to kiss me. <laughs> Put a dick in every hole, but don't kiss. <laughs> it's just like really That's interesting. Weird. Anyway, she she came home, and the next day he came over, and it was just beyond awkward because he was stressing that she's like in love with him, and she's like. I've literally spooned every guy afterwards or just cuddled. Like I just thought that was normal. I'm just an affectionate person. Yeah, yeah. it depends woman to woman. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some might be maybe starved of that kind of emotional intimacy and, and as a result when you do it, it, it yeah. triggers them more, you know, because when women orgasm, they release oxytocin, oxytocin, which is the bonding yeah. chemical, which men actually don't. They release oxytocin and vasopressin uh, when they feel close but it's not from orgasming <laughs> when they feel an emotion. But what are the statistics of women actually having orgasms in casual hookup sex? <laughs> Let's be real. Yeah. <laughs> Probably like 4%. <laughs> oh, it could be a bit more than that. Let's know. hope. Yeah, I hope my stats are higher than that but I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, it, it is definitely a, a bizarre culture. It's it's maybe a, it's a reaction to what to the control of yesteryear, but it's a overreaction, and now we're not fulfilled. And I think it's also because the popular culture, popular art, media has always pushed the narrative that you know you're a you're almost a, um, an avatar for change. If you live that lifestyle, you're in a way almost being virtuous. You're um, mm. undertaking a revolutionary act in a way and I don't yeah. think that's just not accurate. It might have been in the 60s but I don't think today that is. Um, True that. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what we – how you – get around something like this because if if it's if we start from the position that men and women on average have different sexual needs and different hormonal and biological responses to sex and we have to build a culture upon that mm. well her from what i've heard on a podcast her general response is that monogamy is is seemingly the best avenue mm. for that yeah yeah that's right and what you also just said as well is acknowledging the fact that men and women have different sexual preferences biological needs etc rather than fighting to advocate for it to be the same just saying well there's different wants and needs 
between all genders, um, go with what you want and stick to your boundaries, your limits and understand what makes you feel empowered or what makes you feel limited, etc. and work within that. Done. Bada bing. Mm. Um, obviously easier said than done, easier but said, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. we're dealing with, you know, well, in any the sexual encounter, there's at least two people and what one person might want is different yeah. to the other person. And yeah, and then what is, if, if you know, there's a society of 20, let's take 20 people and say 16 of them um, are participating in casual hookups and the other four don't want to do that, but then they feel pressured and that's sort of almost yeah. what we have today, but on a grander scale. So I think... Um, not expecting a perfect outcome, not expecting a utopia is is the first step. Mm-hmm. Because if you come from the position that, okay, we can get to a point where everyone will be equal and we'll all understand each other and totally be able to fulfill everyone's sexual needs, but also maintain everyone's sexual boundaries in a casual encounter where two 18-year-olds might be drunk, you add all the alcohol into it and, the, you know, when you're 18 and, and sometimes even younger and you're super insecure and you don't really mm. know how to articulate what you want exactly, I just I just think you're asking for trouble when you, when you yeah. try and aim for that. Mm. I don't know what the solution is and I don't think many people are going to want to go back to what it was, um, but... She's, there's another one that you might like, uh, Mary Harrington. They're similar, um, but she, this is her words, she says the next stage or the next wave of feminism cannot be any further liberation. There has to be some form of, not control, but some form of rules that are then not just imposed onto women, but the society that is going to help women but also men and everyone prosper because it's going to actually include the fact that where we do have, you know, biological urges and those differ from sex to sex and age and and culture and, and all of that. And we have to have some limitations um, upon acting out those visceral urges. In the same way, you know, we might want to have junk food all the time. But if we do that, that's not going to be good for us long term, nor is it going to be good for our family long term, nor is it going to be good for the community long term if everyone eats junk food every day. So yeah. casual yeah, sex, so I think. Yeah, so dangerously indulgent. Yeah, I, I, I think casual sex has to be seen like, like yeah. junk food where, you know, once a week yeah. or, you know, within moderation if you're in control of it, it's fine. Yeah. But there are people yeah. that can get addicted to it. There are people for whom it controls their life. And if you say there's no difference between junk food and a healthy meal, that's just objectively wrong. But also you're doing a disservice to the people who are both, you know, consuming the healthy meal and, and taking the time yeah. and effort to do that, but also the people who are eating the junk food. Yeah, exactly. And don't just do it for the sake of doing it. Um, I mean, casual sex, that is. Like do it if you've... You know, you're having a great time and you're really attracted to someone. But some people just have sex for the sake of having sex, like empty sex that leaves them feeling unfulfilled and empty and it's out of habit or it's out of routine or it's just because you said yes when someone asks you. Like casual sex is fine when you're using it in a way that makes you feel great. Um, and I think that's that's the key is understanding, like, does this make you feel great? Obviously not every sexual encounter is going to be amazing and incredible but it might not necessarily be like okay I'm teetering on addiction or whatever it's just like oh well this isn't as amazing as I wanted to feel or I'm not feeling great psychologically inside myself with these experiences maybe I need to cut back or wait until I meet a hot guy that I'm super attracted to or a hot girl and then do it knowing that it'll be much more satisfying and fulfilling, et cetera. So it's just about, I think, just knowing yourself and understanding yourself and not trying to push yourself into a box or going a certain way. And also for women in particular is learning to say no and and putting boundaries in place and not just being too nice um, and feeling like, well, he invited me over for Netflix and, oh, I was such an idiot, I thought, 
he literally meant Netflix. So I, I've got to just follow through with it, etc. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's really the essence of it, isn't it? I'm sorry if you totally. could hear Remy crying in the background. Oh as no, well, I can't, by the I way, can't hear he anything. was is he okay? Meltdown. Oh okay. Well, he's well, been up this whole time. <laughs> oh wow. All right. Well, I'll let you take <laughs> ten to him. Um. Thank you, everyone, for listening. That book's uh, the one we're talking about, Elise, uh, Louise Perry, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. haven't read it, but I've, all the interviews and podcasts I've heard from her have been fantastic, and Eliza's mm-hmm. one-third through, and she sounds like she, sounds like she likes it. Um, subscribe on YouTube. Uh, follow us on Instagram, TikTok, etc. Share this podcast with someone that you may think will benefit from it. Uh, give us a review on on Spotify if you enjoyed it. If it's a good review, if it's a bad review, don't don't give it. And otherwise, enjoy the rest of your week. We'll see you next time. Bye, guys. See you next week.